If you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm 13. We are starting a new series this week. We're going to spend five weeks in the book of Psalms. And uh, the Psalms are a rather interesting book. To be honest, they're one of my favorite books. In the, it's, it's my favorite book in the Bible. I spend a consistent time in the Psalms because they help my prayer life not be so uh, routine. Um, the Psalms are, are, are this amazing uh, picture of what experiencing a life with God looks like. And we're going to get a picture of that as we dig into the Psalms together. But before we get into the message, I would just like to pray, um, and then we'll get into uh, what the Lord has to say with us to us in Psalm 13 this morning. Father in heaven, there are times in our life where it seems like you are silent, you're absent. And God, we, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes really don't know how to respond when it seems like you are not responding. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning and hear the cry of David in a, in a season of his own life where you seemed distant and silent, I pray that we would be encouraged. And God, I pray that we would be challenged. And so turn our eyes to you this morning. Fix our eyes on the glories of the cross through your word and remind us of our need for you so that we would come to you honestly and we would come to you boldly this morning in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. When I uh, was converted in 2012, I had this, this, this pretty uh, enthusiastic way of expressing my faith. Um, much like a kid in a candy store, I would just kind of jump from person to person to person to person to person, just excited to share the joy that I had in Jesus. And uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who've been following Jesus longer than I have, um, with very good intention, uh, would communicate with me, uh, basically in, in using, you know, they would use different words, but essentially what they would tell me is that this initial zeal would pass away. That there would, there would be a period of my life where I would recognize that Christianity and following Jesus wasn't um, butterflies, rainbows, and an easygoing journey. That it was actually, in fact, uh, a rough and a difficult journey. And what they were trying to communicate to me was what Jesus communicated to his disciples when he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? And we see over and over in, in the scriptures that, that God actually uses um, and leverages the difficult circumstances of our lives for his glory and for our good. But as a new believer, this didn't really make much sense to me, right? In, in my mind, all of my suffering and difficulty was spent in a context of me loving and having deep affection for my sin. And so I, I didn't quite have a category or or, or, and probably this is because of a lack of experience, but I didn't have a quite, a, quite a category or an understanding for how someone who's following Jesus, who's not living a life in sin, could actually experience challenge and experience periods and seasons of doubt or even experience times where God seemed like he abandoned me. I didn't have a category for that. I didn't have a, a, a way of processing or thinking through uh, periods of my, my Christian life that would be categorized by inner distress or depression. I didn't have a, a, a way of understanding what it looked like to be faithful to the gospel in the pain of my own circumstances. I didn't understand what it looked like to worship Jesus when I felt abandoned by him. 
I didn't understand how the, sing, the sting of my own indwelling sin and the fact that I would be continuously struggling and trying to overcome things and affection that I had for sin and how that would affect my walk with Jesus. And, it, and I didn't quite grasp how the, the toil and the difficulty of just being human would bring difficulty to my, my life in Christ. And, and very few people actually told me that some of the hardest things about my life in Christ would be the very things that would give me a greater confidence in Christ. There were very few people that had the, the, the words to communicate to me. You see, see the, the thing that, that grieved me when I was, I was told and cautioned that my zeal would decrease was that when I was cautioned, I wasn't given any hope. It was just, that will pass away. You won't, you won't feel that way anymore. Your, your fire for the Lord uh, will, will die. And what I heard in their communication was the groaning of a cynical Christian. Because in their, in their, in their longevity as a believer, there was this, this tension between the difficulty of this life and, the, and their love for Christ. And, and, and it seemed like they too didn't quite have a category for that tension. They didn't have a, a way of walking through that tension, a way of dealing with that tension. But you see, the hardest things, some of the hardest things about our life in Christ are actually the very things that God uses to grow us closer to Him. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 13. And so, um, maybe you've walked in here this morning and, and you found yourself in a, in a position of distress. Things are not well with your soul this morning. And I pray that the Lord would use the beauty of Psalm 13 to comfort you, to help you find assurance of God's love for you, but also to find assurance of your own condition as one who is adopted. That through the test of your faith, you would be proven genuine as a believer and you would have assurance of your own position before God as a child of God. But we tend to take our eyes off the Lord when we don't understand what he's doing. Right? When we don't understand what, what God and all of his grandeur and his greatness and his majesty and his sovereignty and his providence and this, this idea that God is intimately connected to and involved with all of the intricacies of my life and your life and the circumstances of my life and your life and he's doing it all at the same time. But when we don't understand what he's doing in our life, we tend to take our eyes off of him. And we, we fix our eyes on our circumstances, we fix our eyes on our emotions, we fix our eyes on, on, our, on our, our position, right? Whether it's a desirable one or a, or a not so desirable one. And we take our eyes off of the king because we don't understand what he's doing. But when God seems distant from us, and we're going to see this in Psalm 13, when God seems distant from us, we must remind ourselves of his faithful love to us. When God seems distant, we actually can leverage the word of God in prayer to, to preach the gospel to ourselves, as it were, to, to remind ourselves of the truth of God, to remind ourselves of the promises of God so that we can have confidence before God even when it seems like he is silent. When God seems distant from us, we must remind ourselves of his faithful love to us. And Psalm 13 is going to show us what that looks like. And so as we kind of look at the Psalms, right, we're starting this series. We'll be spending the next five weeks in this, this book. They're, they're, uh, uh, the Psalms are a collection of 150 poems that are primarily prayers and songs, okay? And they're not poems, typically how we think of poems, right? We think of poems and we think of like rhyming words at the end 
and the Psalms are very different. Actually, 59 of the 150 Psalms are songs or prayers of lament. 59, over a third of the prayer book of the Bible is actually lament. Filled with cries of, of righteous complaint before God. Filled with cries of distress before God. Filled with uncertainty and doubt and just a, a, a true picture of, of the human heart in relationship with God in a fallen world, right? And in these, in these songs and prayers of lament, we, we see that distress and doubt and not knowing what God is up to are normal places to be. They're normal places to be, right? But we, in our, in our culture of American politeness, we, we don't leave much room for this, do we? Right? Because, and, and you can tell this by this simple picture. When you walk into church, after a week of struggling, and someone actually asks you how you are doing, how do you respond? You say, I'm fine. I'm fine. Things are great. You might have wanted to punch somebody before you walked in here, but things are great. Right? You might have wanted to yell at yourself or shove your face in a pillow and scream as loud as you possibly could. But things are great. They're fine. And in our culture of American politeness, we haven't left room for much lament and wrestling with the Lord, have we? But Psalm 13 gives us grace. It shows us that you can walk into this room on a Sunday morning and say, things suck. They suck. And I don't know where God is at. And I don't know what God is doing. And I'm struggling right now. And I have a love for my sin that is eating me alive on the inside, and I need your help, and I need your prayers, and I need your wisdom, and I need your counsel. I need the Lord today, and we need room for that, and we also, we can't microwave lament, right? This is kind of my propensity when I, when I, when I, ha when I experience the loss of a loved one, right? I don't, I don't like pain. I don't do well with pain. I'm afraid of pain. I run away from pain, and so when a, when a loved one is lost, I try to be as optimistic as possible, and I don't allow myself to experience the, 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 just the process of grief. And so as we deal with and walk with the, 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 the heavy nature of Psalm 13 this morning, I don't want us to microwave verses 1 through 4 and skip right to verse 5 and 6 where it's like, trust in the Lord. No, no, no. I, I want us to slow down and look at verses 1 through 4 and see David struggle here and struggle with this, and he's going to end with trust in the Lord, but it's, got, it's going to start from a place of questioning. But another interesting thing about the Psalms, right, when we read books of the Bible, typically what we do is, is like the book of Exodus is one narrative, it's one story. The book of Romans is one letter, and so we see throughout the story or the narrative this, this thread, and we're trying to tie and make connections. But the Psalms are a different part of the Bible. You see, each psalm should be handled individually because what they are, they're a collection of individual psalms. And so as we look at the psalms, it's not one flowing letter. This is 150 different poems, but they've been arranged intentionally. And so as we look at the psalms, one of the really fun things to do is to try to make connections between why, why they were arranged in this way, right? So we're looking at Psalm 13. Why is Psalm 12 where it's at and Psalm 14 where it's at? And we actually see in Psalm 12 a lament that David actually expresses feeling alone and lonely, that there's, there's no godly people around him. 
godly people have abandoned David in Psalm 12. He feels abandoned by people. In Psalm 13, David feels abandoned by God. So you see the escalation there from abandoned by people to abandoned by God. And then Psalm 14 is this meditation on how foolish it is for someone to come to the conclusion that God does not exist. Because how often when we feel abandoned by God do we question his existence? And so Psalm 14 is this reminder that that we cannot go the way of the fool and conclude that even though we're struggling, that God does not exist and he's not there because he is. He's there, he's, he's involved, and he's active. And so now that we have a, a picture of what to expect when we read these psalms, let's read Psalm 13 together. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. As we look through the different movements of the psalm, we're going to see David's state, where he is at. And then we're going to see in, 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 in verses 3 and 4, we're going to say David's plea, what he wants from God, how he wants God to engage with him in this situation. But then the psalm is going to close in verses 5 through 6 with David's confidence, where his confidence rests. And as we look at David's state in verses 1 through 2, we're going to see a few things. There's a spiritual dimension to his state. There's a physical dimension to his state. And there's a circumstantial dimension to his state. These are, these are three kind of layers of things that he's laying out before the Lord as he's questioning and essentially complaining before God with regard to his situation. He's saying, how, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David feels forgotten and distant from God. He feels as though God has abandoned him in his circumstances, in his, in his situation. Do you relate with David? You see, the Psalms are, are designed and the poetry is designed to evoke our own imagination and get us emotionally involved with the text. Do you identify with David? Do you, do you think of or can you think of a moment in your life where you feel like the Lord has just abandoned you? You didn't know what he was doing. And life was hard, right? There could be various reasons for this. But then not only that, he, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Right? And what he's saying is, it's, hide, your, hide your face from me is this, this euphemism to basically describe that, that God is no longer blessing David. It doesn't seem like God's favor is on David right now. It seems like God's hand of judgment or his... his, his Whatever, like he, he's, he's not in a position of favor before God and, and God has hidden himself from David and David doesn't know what to do and he's wrestling with this and it's put him in an emotional state of turmoil and inner distress and it's, this is like intense language. He doesn't know what to do. He's doubting, he's questioning, he's complaining. And I love the way that James Montgomery Boyce helps us identify with David's situation. He says this, there may have been years 
when you saw many spiritual victories and could chart rapid spiritual progress. But for many months now, you've been in a deepening slump. You know that God deals with us by grace, but the lack of blessing has continued for so long that you've become morbidly introspective. You've been dredging up past sins and have been wondering, is God punishing me for what I did then? I confess the sin and believe that he forgave me, but maybe he's bringing it up again and putting me on hold because of it. In extreme situations, you may even think God has abandoned me forever, right? It's in these, these moments of discontent, these moments of distress, where we almost start to argue with ourselves, don't we? We almost start to wrestle with what's actually going on and why, and we start asking not just God questions, but ourselves questions as well, right? Have I brought this on myself? Is, is, there, is there sin in my life that's causing me to feel this way? Is there a distance that I've been keeping myself at away from God? Is God punishing me for something that I, I confessed a long time ago? What's going on? How, how am I to navigate and deal with this? And he continues, right? So we have this, this spiritual dimension. David feels cut off from God. He's not just emotionally troubled. This is much deeper than this, right? Right? I can respond to a situation in life with sadness, but, but emotional sadness and being cut off from God himself and his blessing and his favor are totally different things. And so we have to see that David's not just emotionally distressed. He, he, this is theological. It's deeply theological. He feels cut off and distant from God as if God has abandoned him totally, completely. But then he moves to this physical dimension, right? This, this physical reality. He says, how long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long must I essentially argue with myself or wrestle with this internally? How long must I be under this excessive distress and sorrow? How long, God? How long? When are you going to do something about this? This is the way that David is praying here. This is very real and authentic and intense language before God. This is far deeper than just, God, things are bad right now. Can you fix them? This is process. There's, there's intricacy and intimacy going on here. David is essentially righteously complaining before God, asking God to, to see him, to notice him, to notice his condition and do something about it because it seems like God's not doing anything about it. It seems like God doesn't care. And it's making David distressed. Look, if, if you're co- consistently inclined to depression, I, I just I, I want to I grab your attention for a moment because I relate to you. If you're consistently inclined to depression, it's, it's good to be aware of that because in these kind of situations in life, it's going to re- cause us to respond a certain way, right? Or if, you're, you're, or if you experience life in emotional extremes, right? where your, your, your emotions are kind of volatile and unpredictable. They're, they're, they're not um, easygoing and, and gradual. There's, there's, there's this turmoil in the way that you respond to emotions. You need to see that. We need to be able to notice that. Because here's the thing. If, if you're prone to depression or like crazy amounts of anxiety, um, this picture or this kind of p- part of life is going to be exceptionally difficult. It's not just going to be difficult. It's difficult for everyone. 
but it's going to be exceptionally difficult for you. And, and, and we've got to notice where we're prone to drift into extremes, even when it comes to anxiety and depression. And, and here's the thing. Noticing that you're one who's kind of prone to get depressed isn't going to cure your depression, right? It's not like through knowing that, that I'm going to respond to this situation in a way that's, that's more emotionally extreme, it's not going to cure me, it's, it's, but it's going to help you. And so just noticing isn't enough is, is what I'm saying. We can't just notice that we're prone to emotional extremes. But we have to be aware of ourselves and who we are so that we can discern the nature of our condition when we're in seasons where it seems like God is absent, where we're in emotional stress and emotional anxiety. And here's the thing, and I, I, I want to tell you this. The Bible is not anti-medication. It's not anti-medication. And so for some of you, you might have genuine chemical imbalances in your brain and need professional help and guidance and need to consult a doctor. And I, I want to encourage you in that. I want to show you there's grace there in the scriptures for medication to help us walk through these things. However, before running to a doctor, I would encourage you to lean on godly, wise counsel. Because if you're anything like me, I'm prone to, rub to run to substances and things to suppress things I'm designed to feel. And so even though the emotions are intense, doesn't mean that we're not designed to feel them. And so God might have you in a, in a position of emotional intensity and distress before him because he's trying to do something in your life. So don't miss that. Don't run away from your distress and your anxiety and seek to numb it because sometimes our distress and our anxiety are tools in the hands of our Redeemer to bring us to Christ and show us the glories of the gospel again and again and again. And so if that's you, maybe you're in a, in a, in a period of depression and distress and you really identify with David here saying, God, how long? How long am I going to deal with this? And I want to encourage you and press you to seek godly, wise counsel from people you know love Jesus. And so we see a spiritual component, right? And then we see an emotional component in David's struggle and then a circumstantial one, right? His enemies are triumphing over him. His enemies are defeating him. And, and David's probably talking about physical enemies, actual enemies armies of people who are in opposition to the nation of Israel, or he could be talking about a situation like when his son tried to take the throne away from him, and his son Absalom pushed him out of the kingdom and tried to kind of politically assert himself as the king of Israel and, and, and Dave pushed David out into exile. This could have been a circumstance like that. And so David actually has physical enemies that are triumphing over him, and it's, it's this circumstance, it's this situation that's put him in this spiritual crisis, in this emotional crisis. And, and, and what we see here, which is really, really helpful, and other psalms point to other things, circumstantial things that can put us into distress. Other psalms point to false accusations, being falsely accused or threatened, being attacked, Committing sins, putting us in a situation of emotional and, and, and spiritual distress, right? And so when we're in a season of asking how long, we also need to be asking, okay, Lord, is there any way that I've contributed to this? Is there secret sin in my life that I'm concealing from you? I, you feel hidden from me. Am I hiding myself from you in any way? 
right? Because there are psalms of lament that, that cry out to God in distress, not because of circumstances out there, but because of circumstances here, things that the psalmists themselves have done to contribute to their poor and lowly condition. But then there are also psalms of lament that speak of defeat like this, circumstantial defeat in such a way that, that point to suffering due to illness or incapacity, right? And so there's lamenting psalms that, that we can be asking, Lord, how long? Because of illness or incapacity, because we're unable to do something because of our, our, what we're experiencing right now in our human frailty. And so even though David is talking about a physical enemy here, we can look at other lament songs, songs and prayers in the Bible and see that there are other circumstances that lead us to this kind of place. But we also know through the whole counsel of God's word that we have a spiritual enemy that opposes us every second. And the Bible compares and likens the devil to a roaring lion seeking to eat you. And that we must maintain a constant awareness that there is always spiritual forces that are real, existing, and have lots of power and authority. They don't have divine power and authority, but they have power and authority to influence you and your life. We see that in the book of Job as the devil is given permission to take things away from Job, to take his family away from him and his health away from him. And he's given permission to do so by God because God is doing something in the midst of Job's suffering. And so we can see here that there are a variety of circumstances and things in this life that can oppose us and put us in a position like this. And the point is this, and I I want you to hear this. When we come to God, we come to him honestly with our questions and our doubts and concerns. The reason why I wanted to spend so much time unpacking the realities of verses 1 and 2 is because we need to understand that the Bible is faithful to the human heart in describing the intricacies of walking through difficulty with the Lord. Difficulty isn't just something we get over in five minutes when we convince ourselves that it's okay. Difficulty is something that we have to walk through faithfully in dependence on the Lord, and it might take months or years. And yet in our, in, our, in our moments of asking God, how long? We also see verse 3, consider and answer me. Notice me, he says. The interesting thing about this psalm is it progresses from a, a turbulent and emotional beginning to a tempered and confident calm prayer at the end. And in fact, in, 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 in the Hebrew, the first section, the turbulent emotional beginning is five lines. And then there's this middle section, this turning point in the prayer, that's four lines. And then finally, this this declaration and expression of trust and praise in God, that's three lines. And so you see that there's this intensity to the beginning of the prayer that gradually gets more and more and more calm as David is reminding himself of the reality of the Lord's control over his circumstances and that God is, in fact, involved. And so we see this in this transition point in verse 3, we see David beginning his plea, consider And answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. David is pleading for God's attention. He's pleading for God's response, and he's pleading for God's renewal. He wants God to pay attention to him, to notice him. God, God, do you see me? Consider me. Take note of who I am. 
Right? This is David. He's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He is the archetype and the picture of what it means to be faithful to God as an ancient Israelite. This is David. This is the one who was this picture of dependence on God that God himself made a promise to David that his line would never be off the throne. This is the David that, that even the Messiah is likened to, the son of David. And he's saying, God, notice me. Do you see me? Do you see my condition? Do you see what I'm going through? Do you see that my enemies are, they're going to win? And what are other people going to think when, when, when my enemies win, when they defeat me? I'm supposed to represent you and, and the world is, is, is crushing me. Take note. Answer me. He's pleading with God to notice and pleading with God to respond. And he's pleading with God to renew him. This plea touches the whole person, right? In, 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 in these three things that he's talking about here, we see him appealing to the spiritual component of the fact that he's separated from God. He feels like God is far off. Notice me. Take note. But then the second layer of this, answer me. Take note. Don't just take note. Don't just see me, but God, do something about it. I need your help. I need you to do something about it and renew me. Enlighten my eyes. Help me see what's going on. Help me get a picture that's greater than myself, God, because I know your ways are not my ways, and I know your thoughts are not my thoughts, and I know and I have confidence that you're doing something here, but I don't know what it is. And so enlighten my eyes. Help me see it. But notice how in verse 3 that David basically says that if God doesn't answer him, he's going to die. It's pretty dramatic. but everything is against him and is overcoming him. And so David is in such, a, such distress and turmoil. He's like, God, if you don't answer me, I'm going to die. I don't, I don't know what else to do. In fact, this is almost language that kind of points at David might rather die than have God continue to be silent. Imagine being in a position like that where you would rather die than have God remain silent. This is total dependence on a God who is involved concerned and able it's what it looks like in the mess of difficult circumstances and difficulty do you trust more in your own skill or stability to overcome the areas of distress in your life or do you trust in the lord to carry you through it i think oftentimes if we get fired from a job we trust more in our resume to get us the next one than the lord Or when we're, when, we're, when we're struggling to pay bills that we trust in our family to provide for us or, or our friends to provide for us, then we actually do the Lord to provide for us. So we run to others to ask for help without even taking a moment to pause and seek God and what he's doing. Do you trust more in your own skill or stability? Or do you trust in Christ? And I, I want to be careful here because, I, look, I... I know that there are many people in this body who are, who are, who are here who are asking, how long? How long? And I don't want to minimize that, and I'm not minimizing that, and that's painful and difficult. But I just want to encourage you, where is your trust? Where is your reliance? Where are you seeking relief? Genuine trust, 
genuine trust in, in, in God and the gospel begins with a recognition that you are totally helpless without God's involvement. What we see here is a vulnerable David, a helpless David, a needy David. David has, has surrendered any stake that he has in fixing this. He can't fix this. He needs God to do something. If not, he will die. That's how he feels. That's how he's responding. That's how he's communicating. That's how he's praying. God, if you do not do something, I don't know how I'm going to go on any longer. But, but church family, don't mistake God's apparent silence as a lack of care. I have a three-year-old. We're trying to potty train right now. Pray for us. Please. And there are times where I'm in the, in the, in the, in the kitchen, you know, cooking or doing whatever, you know, doing dad stuff. We'll just call it dad stuff. Um, whether I'm talking to Sarah or I'm working on something or whatever, just dad stuff. And my son comes up. Dad. 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 Dad, and I stop and I say, hey, buddy, hold on just a second. I'm in the middle of doing something right now. And he responds with, but dad, that doesn't make any sense. And that's genuinely how my three-year-old responds to that. I'm like, well, hold on, wait a second. And in that moment, I am being silent to my son. I'm, I'm choosing to not address his concern right now. Why? Because I want to remind my son that he is not the center of his own universe or my universe. My allegiance is not to my boy. I love my boy, but my allegiance is not to him. And so what appears like a lack of care to my three-year-old is actually an act of great affection that I have for him because I think one of the most loving things I can do for my three-year-old son is remind him that he is not the center of my universe and that he is not God. Walking through periods of time where it seems like God is not involved or God is silent and still trusting in him is the crucible of our sanctification and growth in Christ. It's living in that tension where, where, where God's not really seeming to do anything, but we're holding on to him as tightly as possible anyway because we know who he is and that he will come through and that he will help us. And that tension is the crucible of our growth and holiness. We grow in maturity as we cling to Christ in difficulty, in suffering, as we, we, we plead with him to deal with us and help us when he is silent. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David's confidence is not strong because he just has some sort of supernatural will or tenacity to his confidence. It's, this is not David exerting his will and his effort to be confident in God. David's confidence is strong 
because of what his confidence is pointing toward. The object of his confidence is God himself, and that is what makes his confidence strong. It's not how David is trusting in the Lord. It's who David is trusting in that makes his confidence strong. And so don't think that because you're experiencing a moment of doubt that your faith is just weak in this moment and your, your suffering is because your faith is weak and, and, and God's ignoring you because your faith is weak and you're just not trying hard enough. Don't, don't believe that lie. Our faith is strong not because of our effort. Our faith is strong because who we have faith in. The God who is not changing, the God who has covenant loyalty to his people, steadfast love to his people. Love does not change with God. His position before us does not change. Our circumstances change. Our emotions change. God does not. He doesn't change. And even when he's silent, his character is good, and he is good, and he is working even though he is silent. Between the Old and New Testament, we have 400 years of God's silence with the Jewish people that closes with the birth of the Messiah. Don't think that God was just kind of waiting in line for his turn over those 400 years. He wasn't. His silence is by design because in the silence, he is doing something. He's working in you and in me a peculiar work of glory that is preparing us for what's to come. It's testing us to show us that we're genuine so that when we come out of the other side, we can say, I'm real. I'm a Christian. My faith is true. My confidence is firm and my rock will not move. That is why God is silent. Because he's helping us see who he is in light of who we are and helping us hold on to him. David's confidence leads to a response as he rejoices in God's power and rejoices in God's consistency, that he doesn't change. Right? I've trusted in your, your steadfast love. I've trusted in your covenant loyalty. I've trusted in your commitment to me, Lord. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. My heart shall celebrate your saving power. My heart shall rejoice in the fact that I know, even though it doesn't feel like it right now, you're with me and you're, you're, you're carrying me and you're walking with me. This isn't positive self-talk that changes his emotional temperament. This is David essentially preaching the good news of God and his character to himself, reminding himself of who God is. Because his emotions are prone to change and God does not change. He's reminding himself of his faithful love even though God seems silent. Because in proclaiming the promises of God to himself, he's reminded that there's purpose in this situation. David's trust in God leads him to conclude with certainty that God's response will exceed his own expectations. Nothing's happened. No circumstances have changed in this prayer. And yet David says that God has dealt bountifully with him. How can David say that God has repaid him well when nothing's happened? Because he's trusting in God's past faithfulness and that God has always, always exceeded my expectations and his own dealings with me. And so even now when it seems like he's silent, I know that when he does something, when he responds, when he asks, when he answers my prayer of consider and answer me, O Lord my God, that his response is going to exceed my expectations. Because he's always exceeded my expectations. Because he is the Lord. 
It's not the passion or the fervor of your own effort that strengthens your faith. It's growing in your own awareness and understanding of what your faith is pointing to. Growing in your faith is not try harder, just, just hold on tighter. Growing in your faith is getting more and more and more of a picture of who it is that your faith is grabbing toward. And you're only going to grab onto that stronger, which you know more deeply. And so the, the, the Word of God gives us hope here. Because in the Word of God, we have the revelation of God and who He is. We have the revelation of Christ and who He is. So we can grow in our understanding of Christ and who He is and therefore hold on to Him tighter. And so in prayer, we remind ourselves of who it is that we entrust our lives to and why He is worthy of all our attention and our affection. In the Gospels, we are reminded that Jesus Christ Himself, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, experienced true and genuine abandonment on the cross. The Father turned His face away from his son as he was hanging on the cross. And we see Jesus cry out in agony, not in the reality of his physical torture, but the relational severing that just happened as God turned his face away from the son and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords crying out from the cross. God, you've abandoned me. And Christ himself in that moment went through total abandonment by God so that you and I could experience adoption from God. You see, on the cross, what happened is Jesus was rejected so that you and I could be accepted before him. And David here did not have the full picture of the gospel. David had a piece of it that he could hope in. We have the whole counsel of God's word. We have the whole revelation of God here. We know the end of the story. We know who Christ is. We see who he is. We know that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, even our feelings of abandonment. And we know that Christ approached the cross knowing his abandonment was coming, crying out in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating Blood, why? Because he knew that he was about to drink the fullness of the cup of God's wrath and endure the depth of separation required for those who are in sin. Jesus was treated as sin so that we could be treated as those who do not have it before God, so that we could be treated as righteous before God. Jesus endured and knew his abandonment was coming. And he had hope in his own resurrection. He knew he would rise again. Jesus knew that death would not hold him. And so with the hope of resurrection, Jesus endured the cross. And with the hope of resurrection, we too endure this life because we know that this life is not the end. Because we too will experience a bodily resurrection and rule and reign with Christ on earth. And the kingdom of God will be established and there will be no pain for anyone. And we will experience life itself and truly appreciate the nature of our communion with God because of the life that we endured of difficulty. Our suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that no difficulty in this life could measure up against.
And yet, just like Jesus, we learn obedience through our suffering. We learn obedience through our difficulty. We learn what it means to hold on to Christ when life isn't going as planned. We learn obedience through going through the darkness so that we can see the light. A couple years ago, I was uh, traveling to Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, I got to fly through Washington Dulles Airport and uh, landed in Washington, and, and a hurricane was coming through. Um, it was like the end. It was about a Category 1 hurricane that was coming through, and the storm was kind of pretty bad, and it was windy outside, right? And I get on the plane, and I'm like, we're totally going to be on this plane forever, right? Just taxiing and waiting, and they're going to make us sit here for three hours because now we're on the plane, and we've got to wait for the storm, and then we're going to take off. But the pilot said, fasten your seatbelts. We're actually going to take off. And I was kind of freaking out a little bit on the inside, knowing that we were about to take off into a hurricane. And I'm like praying, like, Lord, please don't let the plane crash. And uh, the people around me are like freaking out, right? And so we, we, we hit the runway. We start going. We're speeding. Things are great. Smooth ground. And then we take off, right? The ground is gone. And so now everything's kind of uncertain. It's up to the engine and the, and the plane and the clouds and the Lord to carry us through. And we hit the clouds, and, and I, I'm not kidding. I've never been in an airplane that shook so much. I mean, it, it was just like this violent shaking. It was, it was horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And yet we get through the storm, and it's get above the clouds, and it's totally sunny outside. My attention was on the fact that we were like surrounded by dark clouds and storm and hurricanes and craziness that was unpredictable and, and couldn't be relied on. And yet the sun was always there. It was there. Just had to get to a place where we could see it. Sometimes the greatest way to grow in our appreciation for what we have in Christ is to spend an extended period of life where it seems like we don't have it. And in those moments where God is silent, we fix our eyes on the unchanging so that when we get above the clouds, we know he's always there. Let's pray. Life is so hard, Lord. It's hard for many of us in here. Sometimes we too are asking, how long? God, how long will you allow families in this church to continue to suffer? How long will you continue to seem quiet as if you've forgotten them? How long? Consider us and notice us and see us. God, we need you. We need you desperately. but we trust you. And we know that no matter how we feel, you're consistent and you're there and you hear us and you will respond and you'll respond in a way that exceeds our expectations. In Jesus' name, amen.